Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Banker Midweek. This week, your editors are myself, Liz Lumley, and Amalia Ilgener. Hello, Amalia. How are you? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. You're one of our reporters, and this is your very first time on the Banker Midweek podcast. Very first time. Super excited. Yeah, we're, I'm very excited as well. Uh, we're also joined by a special guest, which is Mark Mullen, CEO of Adam Bank. Hello, Mark. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. So as our listeners know, The Banker Midweek is our weekly discussion of stories live on The Banker site and newsy bits that will influence future stories. But we're going to start off with a little bit of a chat with our special guest and a chat about Adam Bank. So, Mark, I'll put you in the hot seat now. Um, so you guys have recently announced um, a £100 million raise in new equity capital from uh, some long-term shareholders. Uh, but what I'm really interested in, um, what, I, what I read in the statement, was this is around the bank's plans to disrupt the UK mortgage market. I don't think there's any topic that connects UK, uh, UK people than buying a house and dealing with mortgages. So I'd really be interested to know how exactly you're going to do that. No, it's a, it's a very good question. And as you point out already, it's, you know, it's almost a national obsession in the UK because people track house prices and they track stock and build and, um, and consequently, it's a very important part of people's lives. The, the truth of the matter is it's, it's dominated by, you know, as in many other parts of banking and financial services, by a very small number of very big banks. It didn't always used to be dominated. Once upon a time, building societies, mutuals in the UK, uh, were the place you went for mortgages. But then in the 80s and 90s, uh, lots of those building societies became uh, banks and then they were bought basically and absorbed mm. by bigger banks. And so that's why the universal banking model that we know today works. But of course, the universal banking model is not greatly loved by anyone. If you measure it through customer satisfaction, if you measure it through uh, valuations, then you know it's got a lot of questions that, that to answer. And if you measure it by customer experience, as we measure it, then actually it's, it's at best average. So to give you a very practical example of, of, of what, what it means to be disruptive, what it means to be better, uh, on average in the UK, it takes about 14 days for a mortgage customer uh, to get a full mortgage agreement. That's a legally binding sort of commitment to lend. Um, we have an SLA of doing that in less than three days. We typically do it in one. Last week, 39% of our mortgage applicants, and we, we processed 28, 29 million pounds of mortgages last week, uh, were same day. So, so it is possible to do it really better, really mm -hmm. faster, much you know, materially quicker than other people and give customers a better outcome. Um, but that's only one part of the process. So, so, so you know, um, it's the least, in our view, disrupted, digitally disrupted part of the UK banking market. Yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit more about um, interest rates and mortgages later on, but I wanted to sort of keep focusing on, on Adam Bank a little bit. I mean, you guys also work with Durham University to, um, to look into research into diversity in the industry. I'd love to know how that's progressing. Well, it was a project actually that we subscribed and we got involved in a number of years ago, but it's only one of the things that we're doing to try and, if you like, have a positive impact on our environment. And, and there's a lots of different dimensions to that. So, 
you know, we collaborated to develop the Northern Powerhouse Diversity Matters. And that, and that was an, a diversity and inclusion in STEM initiatives, which, uh, which attracted over a million pounds in funding. We signed a tech talent charter. Uh, we supported Tech Up, which was focused on, on, on the sort of um, uh, BAME uh, population, the BAME ethnic population, as, as it were. We partnered with the Prince's Trust, uh, leading their science, technology, engineering, and mathematics partnership for the Northeast. Uh, we've supported the EY Foundation. Um, we've supported STEMX, which is specifically focused on coding for girls in Northeast primary schools. Um, and we've just sponsored Durhack, which is, you know, 450 students came together over the weekend, just passed um, on, 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 on a, a huge big hackathon. And um, we've also signed a memorandum of understanding with Durham University. Um, we're um, going to be closely sponsoring privately and publicly the Durham Math School. We're offering two women in technology scholarships as part of the Anne-Marie Impeden um, uh, University Initiative with Durham. And so, so there's a whole bunch of things we're doing to try and one, generally have a positive impact um, in the UK to specifically focus on equality, diversity and inclusion. More about participation of women in the workforce than it is about ethnic diversity and inclusion in the UK um, Northeast. But that's just a reflection of the fact that the UK is the, sorry, the Northeast is the UK's least ethnically diverse region. Mm. I wanna, that's according to census data in 2021. Yeah, I kind of, I wanted to stay on that a little bit about being in the Northeast. I know there's a lot of work that's been going on in the UK fintech world um, to try to make it seem like London is not the only city in the country. And, and Adam Bank is, is famously based in, in the Northeast. When it, what is that like being, being outside of the capital in this, in this ecosystem? I'm a great believer in the importance of avoiding exceptionalism. So I don't look at the Northeast as, well, you know, it's got greater people than the Southeast or the Southwest or the Midlands. You know, there are great people to be found in all parts of the UK and all parts of society. Um, the Northeast has some very specific um, transitional challenges. Um, as, it, as it's still transitioning from essentially being you know, focused on mining and industrial, um, an industrial economy into a post-industrial economy. It's got very significant challenges when it comes to social mobility, when it comes to educational attainment. And, and therefore, you know, its challenges are different from maybe challenges that you're going to find elsewhere in the country. Um, at the same time, you know, if we need to engage with the city of London, you jump on the East Coast mainline train, it's three hours to the town, and you know, it's, it's not difficult per se to build a company here. It's a little bit more awkward, maybe, than, than you know, it would be if we were stuck on Silicon Roundabout. But there are great universities. We're sitting on the doorstep of Durham University, just up the road, 11 miles away, Newcastle, Sunderland, just across the way, um, Teesside. So there's great schools, there's great universities, and we think it's a great place to, to, to sort of, you know, headquarter a company in Durham. Um, but of course, you know, given the UK sort of London centricity of the whole sort of ecosystem, sure, it, it requires a bit more investment in travel and, and being present in London than, than is convenient, mm. but that's a small price to pay. So finally, because this, this, this concept of, of the changing ways in which we all work is a is a big topic in the industry right now, whether it's sort of hybrid working, working from home. But Adam works on a four day work week. How is that? How has that been working out for you guys? 
Well, it's, I, I spoke with a, with a commentator about this last week, and, and of the two, if you like, significant changes that we've made in the last few years, you know, four-day week is one, and flexible working is the other. We planned our four-day week initiative. You know, we recalibrated our shift patterns. We renegotiated and engaged with our employees. We made sure that we had the right level of cover for our customers so that there was no disruption to anybody and to our proposition, our service, our broker relationships. We planned it methodically. So it's not terribly surprising to me that, that it's possible for us to run our business successfully on a four-day week basis, right? Because we plan all sorts of other things. Why wouldn't we be able to plan this? And mm. um, we didn't plan flexible working because most UK companies didn't plan flexible working because it was foisted upon them by COVID. And so I think they've had a lot more trouble adapting to flexible working and returning to the office and, and sort of impact on culture, impact on collaboration, impact on innovation, than we've had trouble adapting to a four-day week, precisely because we planned it, it didn't just get done to us. So, so I, I Personally, think you know we finding that it works well for us. It's successful. It's differentiating as part of our employee value proposition. It's a very clear signal of commitment to the welfare of our people. Um, we get challenged about it quite a lot on the basis that well, you know, it wouldn't work for us or it's not transferable. And I kind of think well, I'm not sure that that's true. I think you can plan if you plan properly, you can achieve all sorts of quite difficult or potentially quite difficult things. And, and I don't think four day week is a particularly difficult thing for any company to do. And then if you look ahead, you know, every conversation that I'm joining at the moment has got the, the acronym AI in the middle of it. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to work over the next 10, 20, 30 years? Do you think it's going to get more manual or do you think it's going to get less manual? Mm. I think we all know the answer to that. So, so the fact that we kind of move from a five-day week to a four-day week is, in my view, anticipating an inevitable shapeshift in working. And I think we're ahead of it. And I think in a few years' time, we won't look like such an outlier. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay, so are you ready to start commenting on some news, on some uh, feature stories? <laughs> we move on to the banker site. So we're going to... Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll try my best. Excellent. Um, so we're going to move on to stories that are live on thebanker.com now, and we're going to stay with mortgages. And this is an opinion piece from a contributor, Tim Skeet, uh, looking at um, uh, fixing one's interest on a floating mortgage. And he talks a little bit about, you know, maybe having um, long-term fixed rates for, for mortgages, uh, maybe having floating mortgages that stay stay with people. I mean, it's very interesting to explain to my family in the U.S. why I haven't fixed my mortgage for 30 years, which is very common over in the U.S. And um, with the changes in the interest rates, my mortgage and a lot of people's mortgages going up in a few months' time, just in time for Christmas. Oh, so much fun. Um, so why don't I, why don't I uh, turn to uh, uh, Amelia first? I mean, I know you're uh, one, of the, one of the people who's been through the mortgage process. Uh, what do yeah, you think? this is me. Um, I watch the rates so closely and it's very very nail-biting um so i would be one of the homeowners who would be super excited to investigate what a 20 or 30 year mortgage might mean for me um we i mean we benefited from a one percent for a number of years and now it's jumped to just under five so it's a big jump for us, a big jump in our personal finances. So it would be absolutely something that I would look at. And it's actually... 30 years ago, it was double digits. Oh, 
<laughs> but the proportion of, yeah. I mean, the, the house prices, the, the amount of debt. I mean, I have this conversation mm. with my parents, like the amount of debt as a, you know, multiple of, mm. you know, what we, you know, what we earn. And um, so I was, I read this piece with, abs- with, with great interest, really. Um, and especially about the idea of a, a mortgage that could go with you. A mortgage that was flexible, um, and the the writer mentioned Perenna, like a new player in the UK mortgage market, um, just launched a couple of months ago, and just having a quick look at at their mortgages, um, I think it's after five years, it, it, it's almost like a fix for five years because after five years you you're free to to go to another lender, um, and looking at their rates, it's like six point five to seven point five percent. It's not on the cheaper side of things, but it's certainly like roughly competitive with some of the the best buys that are out there. I think ten, like a, a lot of the main players are sort of under five right now. But once you use this new APRC, they're heading to to around about seven. So they are quite competitive. It's a very competitive rate. So I'm I'm really interested. Mm. So Ma- Mark, what do you think about looking at, you know, looking at the way other other countries deal with mortgages and whether some of these different sort of types of way of looking at mortgages would would fit into the UK market? Um, I think it's a good thing. Um, I think optionality and choice um, is is just a good thing for customers, a good thing for competition. Uh, the determination about what is the best mortgage for you as an individual is in part, of course, in the UK regulated by um, um, the FCA. So, you know, most mortgages in this country are, are advised because the, because the regulator wants customers to be advised and 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 hence you have to retain uh, accredited advisors to help you make that decision ultimately the decision remains yours the customers um, but there is a caveat emptor associated with that and and there are customs and norms in, in, in the UK that if you looked at it from outside from a European perspective or indeed from a US perspective you would kind of think well why do people fix for two years mm. right it's sort of isn't it half the market is two years and half of it is five mm. why is that and is that irrational behavior because you know somehow or the other they you know they 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 they've been misled by advisors or is that because uk people value optionality and don't want to be emotionally they don't want to feel as though they're trapped they they want you know they want to be able to make a new decision in two years time because they want to keep their options open mm. personally i think it's a combination of of, of, of all of those things yeah. And it, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous to give an indication of you know what you think the cost of, of, of borrowing will be in the long term. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets it right. Yeah, I've seen some commentary on the on the sort of the, the US model of, of have fixing your rate for thirty years. I mean, what if you if you you know if you if you have a fixed rate of eight percent and then you've seen what we had a few years ago, the low interest rates, it must have been kind of painful to see that you can't get out of that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So in the interest of time, I'm gonna skip we had a story about banks under scrutiny for AML reform, but I'm gonna skip that because I wanna focus um, on uh, what was mentioned before on generative AI. Uh, so this is a story on the site where we are looking to revolutionize European bank work practices. So this is from uh, one of our reporters, Alia Shibley. So leaders across Europe's financial services sector expect Gen AI technologies to deliver a productivity windfall as they brace for its impact on their workforce and operations. So, Mark, you kind of alluded to this a bit. There seems to be kind of two camps, one that AI will 
increase, you know, will will support everyone and others that it will it will take everyone's jobs. You know, kind of what what side what side of the camp are you on? I think if you listen to the sort of Elon Musk's of this world, then we're all doomed to, <laughs> a, life of, to a life of sitting sort of whittling pieces of wood at some point. <laughs> um, I, I think I think you can see the if you like the purest logic for how you get there, but but how quickly you get there, I think is a sort of a somewhat different challenge. And so it's been my experience in banking. I've been a long time in the game that that revolutions happen, but they happen more slowly than maybe they have been in other industries. There is absolutely no doubt that generative AI has an important, massive, and potentially transformational role to play in customer experience and in operational efficiency. Mm. Um, but it will require significant investment, significant uh, regulation and control, because ultimately, if you're selling a product to a customer or you're providing a service, you are responsible for it. And whether if it's your AI, what did it, you're still going to have to underwrite it. And so, so you know, this, it's easier to say, as in many ways, uh, these things are than it is to implement. But I'm, a, I'm of the view that it will be truly transformational to the world of work, not just in banking, but more generally. Mm. So this article also sort of highlights findings from an Ernst & Young uh, report, uh, Financial Services AI Survey, which they surveyed about 60 financial services firms about uh, Gen AI's potential uses. So it found that more than... 80% of European bank leaders expect that up to a quarter of all roles will require upskilling over the next year, although most lack action plans for this. Some 59% of European bank leaders anticipate AI adoption will significantly affect entry-level roles, with 22% planning to use AI training within graduate programs. How do you read this story, Amelia? To be honest, um, it terrifies me. Um, because I'm sort of in the earlier side of my career and the skills are, can seem quite overwhelming and I don't know what I'm competing against um, and I do worry that I'll have to just retrain. Um, but I think that's a, that's a good point you make. Like what are you competing against? What am not, I competing against? Yeah. <laughs> and also just the level of will the skills that if I invest in some new skills like right now, Will they be obsolete in the next six months? And who's going to sort of pay for me to to train? Is it going to be is the onus eventually going to be on graduate students themselves? Because mm. the trend used to be so, for instance, in journalism, like you got trained on the job, but now you pretty much need a, a master's to. It, it's been outsourced. So now maybe as we transition, employers will be giving like will be training their new graduates. But are we going to look down the further down the line and? It's going to be the onus on on more schools, or and will there be a sort of more class divide, like with the people mm. that the, the skills just aren't available? So I do I do worry, but I am sort of excited about the potential to outsource the sort of first draft of things, um, and then use my skills in like refining and you know yeah, and and use like more like nuanced human skills, human yeah. analysis, exactly. Yeah. I, I like to look at it with, I, I never turn in a story except if I haven't put it through spell check. You know? <laughs> that would be unthinkable. So maybe we'll have um, other support coming up soon. So I'm not on the terrified yet, but um, we'll see. We never know. We never know what we're competing against is going to come around the corner. Um, so we are now heading towards, we're leaving the banker site. No, no, it's like, boo. Um, but we're not going far. We're going to the FT 
So this is um, an inside business opinion column from Patrick Jenkins looking at why crypto is a poor relation to digital payments. The real world will, uh, will use will still be the main driver of growth. So he talked a little bit about um, digital payments during the pandemic and kind of why crypto hasn't taken off um, as much as sort of the crypto people in the crypto uh, world wishes uh, that that it sh that it should have, um, and he quotes uh, Martina Weinmark, chief executive of the European Payments Initiative, a group set up by 14 big banks to build a regional payments provider, says the shift away from cash and cards towards digital, principally smartphone smartphone-based payments, is secular and long-term. It's an unstoppable trend, she says, pointing to EPI's ambition to be an unparalleled cross-border bank-to-bank payment system across the Eurozone. That is the dream. So long as the bloc doesn't sign up for the network state. Um, how do you, how do you, Amelia, you want to get into the, the digital payments? Will we all, is crypt, when will crypto be used to buy a coffee? Oh, well, I mean, when its value is <laughs> stable, um, with such volatile, I mean, you don't know how much a coffee is, really. Um, but pay, I'm totally on board with the with payments. Um, some of my work at the banker looked at pay, payments in, in Asia, and I was astounded with the, I think, 13 billion payments via QR codes in Asia in 2023, and it's going to go up to 90 billion in the next five years. So it's a super exciting space, I think. Um, I was kind of surprised to read in, in Patrick's piece about the valuations of the payment companies, of how they've like basically plummeted. But Payments was always the gateway yeah. drug to fintech. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, even PayPal. Um, and I, I mean, it's PayPal's just a part of a part of my life, and it's a part of sort of everybody's well th that I know. So. Um, I was quite surprised at that, um, but I'm absolutely not surprised with the the argument that that payments is is here to stay, and it's really exciting, like exciting place to to, to look at. Mm. So, Mark, as as a CEO of a of a, a new bank, you know how much does does payments keep you up at night? Um, not as much strategically as you might imagine. I, I think to describe it as an inevitability and an unstoppable momentum. I think is absolutely correct because it's about giving people more control more insight more understanding more power and and you know that's what they want let's be really honest when you sort of turn your attention to crypto i'm more of a cynic and i'm more of a skeptic mm -hmm. because we're talking about engineered value you know i'll engineer scarcity to create the to create the illusion of value mm -hmm. but it isn't scarce you've just you've algorithmically engineered the scarcity Please get a grip. So, 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 I'm going to go to my grave remaining a cynic and a skeptic about <laughs> selling nothing to people for lots of money. Um, I do agree hand, with you. <laughs> possible for people. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a neat trick if you can do it. Um, but but it's not one that I support to be really clear. Uh, and if that makes me a luddite, then I'm a luddite all day long. Um, digital payments, on the other hand, uh, bring it, please, because it, it's making the lives of consumers and customers better. Mm. Why wouldn't you want that? Yeah, it's been, yeah, Bitcoin's been around now for what, 11 years, 12 years? Yeah, it's, yeah. 
Anyway, it'll be in the margins. I agree with you completely. Okay, so now we're going to go to our final story. And I went back and forth on what our final story would be. And I decided against the upcoming Klarna IPO. And I, <laughs> I instead went to this one. And I swore the last time we spoke about this topic that I never wanted to mention Nigel Farage's name on the podcast again. But you know what? Promises are meant meant to be broken. So this is um, an update on uh, the uh, controversy that went on earlier this year when Nigel Farage was uh, denied a bank account at Coots and it brought down the NatWest CEO, uh, Alison Rose, for uh, speaking about client accounts to a journalist. So there have been a few um, investigations into this, which has basically come out that um, Coots closed Nigel Farage's bank account because of business reasons. He didn't have the Three million needed for deposits. So this is a story again in the FT. UK watchdog apologizes <laughs> to ex-NatWest chief for misleading impression on Farage probe. The investigation did not find Alison Rose breached data protection rules, says Information Commissioner's Office. Well, she's still out of a job, though. Um, it's very interesting. I mean, when it came out, I, I wrote a blog that I was very upset that we had lost um, a, a prominent female leader in, in the banking industry. But a lot of people sort of commented on, you know, LinkedIn and social posts that she did, you know, speak to a journalist about someone's account, which is, which is not the best thing to do. But the investigation kind of found out she didn't really go into extreme details about, uh, about uh, anyone's particular account. And I don't think she was uh, directly involved in the closure of Nigel Farage's bank account anyway um the uk watchdog apologizes i just I'm, i need to ask comments from from the both of you mark i'll go with you first because i think i'm too emotional maybe to to give a, a, a unbiased account on this sort of too little too late apology oh it's a shame the mm. whole affair has been a, a disaster from and a shame from start to finish mm. sort of you know cardinal rule is just don't talk about customer account details or customers mm. full stop Mm. Don't, don't do it off the record don't do it on the record don't do it um, because confidentiality is at the heart of banking it's always been at the heart of banking because people are hypersensitive about money and reputations and you should just respect and accept that mm. um, it is a shame that, that Alison um, uh, uh, had to step down because of it because as you point out it's a very senior uh, woman at the top of the bank, British banking industry and I think generally speaking you know, you would say that she's been a you know very credible leader of, of that institution. Mm. So, 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 but you I know, mean, it's d all... d d just sorry to interrupt you. Just look at, you know, what RBS was ten years ago, <laughs> and, and, and this anyway. Yeah, anyway, continue. Go on. No, it's it's mm. it's a shame because you know we're seeing people uh, ultimately, you know, what I what fall foul. Their careers, their 30, 40 year careers, mm. get destroyed literally in overnight. Mm. because they've made a mistake or because somebody in their organization has made a mistake and it's pretty catastrophic um but it's an occupational hazard if you're you know a senior executive in, in, a, in a regulated institution i'm afraid it's just you know you gotta you gotta take it on your on the chin and, and say well that's the world i'm living in um and and there'll be a whole bunch of different people about whether whether it's just or not but I, my question is is it proportionate mm. I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure that if it didn't feel very proportionate, I must be honest, you know, instinctively, 
Um, but you you have to fall back on the, the basic sort of premise that, that banking is a private business. It's all a private business and you've got to keep it that way. Mm. One thing I think Nigel Farage is very good at is, is, is picking a thread on a sweater and pulling it for as long as you can. What do you what do you think of her? I mean, she sure chose the wrong person mm-hmm. to talk about if you're going to pick any public figure mm-hmm. that would like insist on a disproportionate. It gets him back on the telly. He gets him back. You know, yeah. This was absolutely um, best thing know. that ever happened to him was losing his goose yeah, like, I mean, he's lost a lot of relevancy, and now it's a new mm. it's a new mantra to kind of like pick up. But I I agree that. As a customer, as just a punter, I, I don't want my bank's CEO to be found to be talking about any any customers, mm-hmm. whether it's Nigel Farage or, you know, you do expect that. You expect that basic um, adherence to those principles because it does then give the question is if you're going to sort of cut corners in one area, what other areas are they going to maybe think mm-hmm. that it's okay? So, yeah, I mean, it was ex- – it's a gift it's that just keeps a mess. on giving in it's terms a of the story, though, and <laughs> it keeps us in jobs yeah. to write about it. Yep. Um, but, yeah, so I guess we just need to sort of watch the, the FCA um, has announced its own probe, so it's certainly not the last we're going to hear about. More probes. <laughs> more probes. Excellent. More investigations. All right, on that bombshell. Um, thank you so much, Mark, for joining us for the Banker Midweek. You were you were very informative, and, and thank you, Amelia. You've now you've now many more <laughs> podcasts to come so thank you everybody more. it's a pleasure thanks thank you guys thank you for listening to the banker midweek part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at the banker available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix search on the banker podcasts to listen to more <laughs>